Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 40 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 4th of November. And Leon, we've got talking this week to Xavier Chris of Swift Networks. That's right. Uh, Swift Networks is a diversified telecommunications and digital business. It works in sectors including resources, aged care, lifestyle village and hospitality and he's going to be telling us all about how it works it sounds fascinating and after that we're still just talking to uh, economist Stephen Kukoulos he's going to be talking us all about the uh, RBA's decision to keep rates on hold and what the outlook for rates is further down the track yeah and all very interesting too so let's listen to Xavier Chris Xavier Chris tell us about Swift Networks well, thank you for, for making the time to, to speak with me. And, and we at Swift Networks have uh, more than eight years experience in providing digital entertainment and communication services and infrastructure. What that effectively means is we design, supply, install, and uh, support the systems and content that keep people entertained, informed, and in touch with their family and friends when they're staying in remote locations, whether it's a FIFO worker living on a uh, site in a Pilbara, a hotel guest in Brisbane, uh, or a retiree living in a lifestyle village or aged care facility. And uh, what that means from, uh, from a competitive advantage standpoint is that uh, our investment uh, in a digital entertainment and communication system enables us to provide the widest range of services in a way that's scalable and customizable to the, uh, to the needs of our customers in a variety of sectors. Our solutions are, are able to run from a 50-room hotel, for example, right through to a 10,000-man camp. And our clients choose to connect and stay with Swift Networks because there is no other B2B player, and I stress we are a B2B player in the digital entertainment and communications market that can provide a fully integrated, reliable solution with the breadth of services that we have at such a competitive price. In fact, when you look back across uh, Swift Networks since its formation in 2008, uh, the business has a 97% contract retention rate. Tell us about the, the specifics of the digital entertainment and remote communications. What are you actually providing? Well, we're providing uh, digital entertainment, that's content, uh, whether that's free-to-air TV, pay TV, internet data and Wi-Fi services. We, in fact, also bring across uh, channels directly from the US. We have agreements in place with all the major Hollywood studios uh, for over 500 movie titles at any one time for our clients. Um, and uh, I guess over the course of uh, the last eight years, you know, Swift Networks has really dominated the Australian resources sector. And we have about a 30% market share of that Australian resources sector, which is about 110,000 rooms in total. And the clients include household names like BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, Chevron. Uh, Our partners on the content side are people like Telstra, Optus, Foxtel, and as I said, uh, all the major Hollywood studios and content providers. And these clients and partners, for that matter, demand and certainly appreciate that we can provide the latest hardware and content that can work reliably in those harsh and remote environments, but at a reasonable price. And I think that's uh, part of the reason why our room installations grew by more than 35% uh, over the course of 2015. So do you also provide a messaging service or something like FaceTime or uh, Skype? Uh, video calls, this sort of thing on your network? Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, we have a number of applications that reside uh, on, our, on our system that enables people to uh, communicate and message uh, with one another when uh, they're away from home.
them. So if you're supplying a 10,000-man camp, then your bandwidth requirements would be quite impressive, wouldn't they? Uh, well, we have uh, a, a twin solution in place. So we can either provide an over-the-top solution like via the internet, via our Amazon web server uh, facilities, uh, or indeed via satellite. So in remote locations uh, where bandwidth is an issue, or indeed in certain metro locations uh, where concurrent usage is an issue, uh, we provide those services via satellite. Now, your own background, you've obviously been in this business a long time. Yeah, I've been in, uh, in the e-commerce and the content sector and in uh, payment processing businesses for, uh, for well over 30 years now. Uh, had the opportunity uh, to work within a business called the Harper Group around the world. Uh, we actually sold the Harper Group uh, to the Ascendant Corporation for $220 million. Uh, and then we established a business in the UK called Retail Decisions. Uh, and retail decisions from uh, zero EBITDA over the course of eight years, built that business up and sold it in true tranches for uh, $640 million uh, over uh, about, about three years ago now. And I guess what interested uh, us when we were looking at the Swift Networks business, which we acquired on uh, May uh, 19th this year, uh, was that the fundamentals of the Swift business were very similar uh, to the fundamentals that existed within the Harper Group and within Retail Decisions when uh, we took over those businesses. And by that, I mean the technology infrastructure was in place place, uh, strong blue chip marquee customers on board, very strong recurring revenue, an experienced management team, uh, strong organic growth, and as I mentioned previously, the, the very high customer retention. And we saw those, those, uh, those key indicators in place within the Swift business, and we saw a business that was dominant in one particular market vertical being the resources vertical. And again, we saw the opportunity to take this business cross vertical and also cross geography because the fundamentals were so strong. Now, the reality, though, is that, I mean, the resources sector is fantastic and it's very Australian, but you could actually move into other verticals like, say, hotel, lifestyle villages, aged care markets, for example. That's exactly right. And that's certainly the train we're on at the moment and uh, and starting to uh, uh, to build uh, on strong early successes in those verticals, as you say, uh, particularly the the hotel and accommodation sector, uh, the lifestyle village and the, and the aged care sectors. Uh, look, the Australian hotel accommodation sectors you know, represent about a quarter of a million rooms right now. But there's a technology refresh out there uh, at the moment, uh, which will enable Swift to become the uh, provider of choice for in-room TV, Wi-Fi streaming, video on demand and, and new in-room services. In fact, in uh, June this year, uh, we signed an agreement with uh, Freedom Internet uh, as a reseller of our services, particularly on the East Coast, uh, that will uh, certainly help accelerate our expansion with uh, new hotel and resort clients. But frankly, we, we see an even bigger opportunity uh, amongst the lifestyle communities and aged care providers. So right now, just within the Australian market, that represents about 327,000 rooms. Uh, and as the population ages, the government forecasts point to as many ni as, as 900,000 rooms by as early as 2020. Now, that industry is, is laboring under old technology uh, with no options for integrated Wi-Fi, Skype, uh, remote monitoring, brain training, bulletins and alerts, all the things that our system and solution inherently provides. And because it's scalable and cost efficient, uh, we're really excited about the value that we're, we're bringing to these sectors right now. Now. Potentially, though, uh, you could also expand into Southeast Asia, couldn't you? Oh, we have a, uh, a number of uh, uh, reseller and partnership discussions uh, right now. But yes, there's absolutely nothing stopping us from entering the Southeast Asian market. Uh, and we're currently... Uh, 
targeting material growth in uh, room installations with uh, hospital and uh, hotel chains in Southeast Asia right now. So we're at the very early stages of scaling up there, but um, we certainly view SWIFT's future as one where we can uh, follow our international customers into those new geographies. Now, the the area you're in is becoming extremely uh, diverse and also highly competitive. How do you see it changing well, the area we're in is, is certainly competitive from a consumer standpoint, uh, but we are a, a B2B player. So we are providing solutions and value uh, to our business clients, whether they be hotel chains or lifestyle villages or aged care providers that then in turn enable them to generate revenue from our services, but also provide better value uh, to their end clients and their end guests. The consumer model that's in play today is a one-to-one basis, uh, where our solutions enable us to deliver the content and our services on a one-to-many basis. So as I say, whether it's a 50-room hotel or a 10,000-man camp, our systems are able to cope with that concurrent uh, content being fed out to all those rooms simultaneously. Which is why, because you're a B2B, you wouldn't be put off by... Uh, phenomena like, say, Netflix? No, absolutely not. No, it's very much complementary with uh, with our services and uh, and the uh, the suite of uh, solutions that we have in play. You could possibly sell to a company raised to look after a greenfield site, a development site, or something like that, couldn't you, to provide these uh, content? Oh, absolutely. And we provide those content today, and we are content agnostic. So though we have our own channels that we bring across direct from the U.S., uh, we have our own uh, movies that we bring across from the U.S., uh, we also provide uh, the likes of uh, uh, Foxtel content to our clients, free-to-wear, etc. And our system is able to seamlessly aggregate uh, all that content regardless of source. Uh, for the individual user. Xavier, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Well, fascinating. Got a very wide range of uh, product, hasn't it? That's right. And it actually, it's actually a really, really smart tool to sort of go into all these very discrete sectors. Yeah. And uh, now, Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kukoulos, the... Um RBA has kept rates on hold. It's uh, no surprises there, and uh, but the economists are expecting a rate cut next year. And what's your view? Look, on inflation grounds alone, because we had the CPI coming out uh, a week or two ago, and it confirmed inflation being very low. So given the RBA does target inflation, you would say the rate cut is on the cards. It's, it's necessary simply because inflation's so low. But the interesting issue, and this was sort of hidden amongst the wording in the RBA statement that came out yesterday was that they're looking forward into 2017 and some of the so-called leading indicators on the global economy and even domestically here in Australia are turning up. Now, that doesn't say that we're heading for an almighty boom, but if you look at some of the leading indicators on commodity prices, they're moving higher. If you're looking at the purchasing manager indices in the US, in China, in the Eurozone, they're all heading higher. So um, maybe the RBA is playing the the waiting game, if you like, that they will cut if necessary. But if the global economy and this commodity price upturn continues, then perhaps they're doing the right thing 
sitting on their hands for for several more months, and you know, and with that, inflation will probably tick up next uh, year, and they don't need to cut. So that's the that's where we are. We're in that grey area of leading indicators up, even though contemporary indicators are, are still somewhat subdued. Nonetheless, I mean, house prices are skyrocketing. I mean, I saw the latest figures from CoreLogic RP Data yesterday. It was quite extraordinary. I mean, Sydney house prices had increased over ten percent during the year. Melbourne house prices weren't far behind at nine point one percent and uh house prices are continuing to climb and uh that's an issue for the rba isn't it it is more from the financial stability reading but that that said they did note a couple of things about housing that the rate of increase even though those numbers you just mentioned are very very high uh, there is some evidence that there's a cooling in the last few months now there's a very mixed bag on all of this sort of uh, stuff depending on the city and the exact month that you wish to wish to start your analysis but they're sort of saying that maybe, just maybe, some of the um, heat's gone out of it. And while it's still strong, they're also looking at the expected oversupply of property. This building approvals number that we saw just a short while ago is confirming that we're building a lot of uh, apartments in particular. And the RBA note when they are completed in the next 12, 24 months, you know, the, the building approvals turn into uh, established or, you know, or, or dwellings that people move into, we could have an oversupply of dwelling. And of course, we all know in Economics 101, when there's an oversupply, prices come down. So again, it's like the, like the view on the whole economy. If they're looking forward, if they're looking into the future and they see a potential oversupply of property, maybe they're comfortable with the fact that prices, while, as you mentioned, are still very, very strong, they may start to cool sometime soon. Well, Moody's put out a report the other day suggesting uh, we could actually be heading for a sharp correction in property prices. Uh, indeed. And in fact, uh, they put the uh, financial institutions, the banks predominantly, on something of a negative outlook uh, in terms of their credit rating. You're highlighting that very point that if you know, if we do get a oversupply of property, the consequences are quite um, are, are somewhat disconcerting because not only do people sort of shy away from buying and prices fall in that sort of environment, but for the financial institutions who, of course, make you know, roughly two thirds of their money from the from the um, residential property market, they're going to be finding it difficult to make money. And of course, if prices would actually fall by more than a, a couple of percent, which a couple of percent is fine, but if we, we start getting price falls of the order of five to seven or, or even more percent over the, a, a year or two, then of course the banks would be in somewhat of a problematic position because they've lent money to people who may be getting close to having negative equity in their properties. And of course, that's not a good thing. At some stage though, I mean, the last time we had a rate rise, I think uh, you've pointed out it was in 2011, wasn't it? Yes, it's about five or six years ago now. Yes. And uh, since then, we've had a series, I think it's of 12 interest rate cuts, obviously spaced over that very, very extended period of time. But I think that's the RBA catching up, if you like, with this fall in inflation that we have seen, that the rate cuts have been well spaced out. They've not been a, a sort of a, a close timing of the rate cuts. And you know, to, to talk of rate hikes, I think is still premature, but a couple of things have got to be noted. The US has already hiked once and you know, after the election, depending what happens there in the US, we might see another one. Uh, and rates are incredibly low. They're in extraordinarily low. They're at, well, as the Bank of England said, at 5,000-year lows, if you can believe that. So in a sense, you wouldn't expect them to stay low forever. But as I said, I think it's premature to be talking about when... You know, we, we might see rate hikes here in Australia because 
on balance, if we're to see a rate move in the near term, it'll be down, not up. But having said that, and this is more of a medium term issue that every householder, every business person needs to put in the back of their mind when they're taking on debt is that you know, over the course of, a, say, a 25-year mortgage, it would be very, very unusual if interest rates stayed this low forever. So put that into your mortgage calculator, if you like, and see you know, how much your repayments will go up when, if and when interest rates go up. As I said, not in the next six to 12 months, but certainly over the next two or three years when rates could well be you know, somewhat higher than they are today. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the market is expecting the Fed to raise rates in December after the election. And I noticed Mark Faber, the uh, Dr. Doom, as they call him, uh, the other day was saying that yes. uh, what the central banks need to do is start increasing rates. Uh, so could we be moving to a trend further down the track? Indeed. This is the thing. Turning points are always notoriously difficult to predict. And we've had, as, as we're just sort of hinting at, you know, years and years and years of rate cuts, low rates, low inflation and, and these sorts of things. And as, as we all know in economics and those of us who have been around for, for many, many years, um, we know that there's a cycle. It's picking this turning point that's the critical matter. And um, there is some evidence, and as we touched on before, the, the, the commodity price cycle is looking a little bit better. The hard economic data in the US, the Eurozone, which we shouldn't ignore, is looking a little bit better. And even in China, their purchasing manager indexes for both manufacturing and the services sector have ticked up over the last couple of months, suggesting that their economy could be doing a little better too. If these are not just a a flash in the pan, a, you know, a six-month wonder, and that we get to this time next year, and some of this upswing that we've just been chatting about has been sustained, that we do get a, an even stronger upturn in activity, then I think, yes, we could be in this position where we will be talking about rate hikes, we will be talking about higher inflation, and the question will be, well, which central banks are going to be hiking earliest, which will be hiking the most? And I think that's the question that um, you know some people in the bond market are looking at, given that we've had this back up in bond yields over the last five or six weeks. But the view in the market is that the RBA will have to lower interest rates uh, next year sometime, and they're keeping their powder dry. When do you expect that would happen and how many rate cuts would you expect? I hate to say it, but it'll be dependent on not just the inflation data, but the RBA's assessment of, uh, as we touched on before, the housing market absolutely critical to them, and the world economy, absolutely critical in, in determining what happens here in Australia. So look, we get the next inflation number at the end of January. The RBA meets a week or so after that in early February. So we'll have the first, if you like, uh, necessary condition of another rate cut uh, come the February board meeting. Yeah, is inflation still low? By then also, we'll have a much better, well, we'll know who's won the US presidential election. We'll have a fairer idea of how our housing market's going. Is this glut of property you know, spilling over from the apartment market to the broader economy? Is that a concern for them? And that's a big $64 billion question, to be honest. And then the global economy, how strong is China? What's happening to commodity prices? Is this you know, amazing lift that we've seen in coal prices being sustained? And, and even for iron ore, we're just uh, a touch under 65 US dollars a tonne uh, today. So, the, the iron ore price is, is is stronger too. If these prices continue to rise, then there'll be the, the rate cut will be called off. But if, as I said, if there's a weakness and a downturn in any of these uh, broad indicators, then the RBA will probably pull the trigger early in the new year. But you know, it, it's certainly it's it's, it's certainly um, open to debate. Well, uh, let me just uh, finally put uh, one scenario to you: that if Donald Trump wins the election, uh, we could see the RBA cutting rates in December. Yes, it's a real possibility because, as we're seeing now with these polls closing over the last week, that uh, the Clinton lead is is really shrinking at the moment. We're seeing you know U.S. stocks falling. We're seeing U.S. 
US futures as we speak, you know, edging lower. So a Trump win would be, you know, quite uh, disruptive for global markets, global economy with his protectionist ideas and, and whatever else he's got in mind. So I think that if we were to see a Trump win and the market turmoil followed that, then the RBA would certainly look at it. And as we touched on before, inflation is low, low enough to allow them to cut rates. But if we get this market turmoil, then December's a possibility. But um, at this stage, uh, Clinton's still favoured to win. But as we saw with Brexit, funny things can happen. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? It strikes me that uh, the new governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, is a reluctant cutter, but uh, they're keeping an eye out on inflation. So I think chances are um, there'll there'll be another cut next year, unless, of course, as I said to Stephen, uh, Trump is elected as president. (laughs) Then all bets are off. The Fed, of course, in the US, the speculation there is if it's a calm enough election that there could be a rate rise. Well, there's speculation that it's going to be in a rate rise anyway. Yeah. Because the US economy is performing strong enough. So let's just see what happens there. And that will have interesting consequences for the Australian dollar, of course. Uh, yes, indeed, it will. In fact, the consequences for Australia, Australian economy are pretty interesting as well. So to the news and what have we got on the book? First of all, the pound is now the world's worst performing currency. It became that this month trailing behind the 150 peers as the first signs of how Brexit will look emerge in October. Sterling posted its biggest monthly decline versus the dollar since the UK voted in June to leave the European Union amid circulation. The government is headed for a so-called hard Brexit where unfettered access to Europe's single market is sacrificed for immigration controls. And the pound dropped after political headlines and comments from lawmakers and central bank officials underlined its vulnerability as concerns about Britain's exit from the the world's largest trading block intensified and sterling has actually fallen every month since april cementing its position as the worst performing major currency this year having weakened more than 17 percent i think it's up to about 18 percent now and uh, this makes the peso look very strong but the other good interesting piece of news is the bank of england governor mark carney will extend his time at the helm of the bank of england seeing the british economy through its split with the european union now speculation's been running high that carney would quit as governor of the bank of england in in 2018 following a slew of attacks from senior Tories and a run-in with British Prime Minister Theresa May. But in a letter to the Chancellor of Exchequer, Philip Hammond, Carney said he wanted to contribute to securing an orderly transition to the UK's new relationship with Europe. Now, Carney's been criticised by pro-Brexit forces after he predicted pressures on the UK economy and price rises if it left the European Union. They accused him of talking the economy down. Many had called him for him to leave his post. Now, Carney will stay at the Bank of England to ensure financial stability when the British government starts negotiating its divorce from the European Union in March next year, and those talks are expected to last three years. But there's a problem. That means British Prime Minister Theresa May will have to find a successor to manage Britain's post-Brexit economy. Yeah, and that's going to be a very interesting job, <laughs> or maybe call him a victim. It will watch that space. Now, China's official manufacturing and non-manufacturing purchasing managers indices for October have been released. They've both beaten expectations. The manufacturing PMI came in at 51.2. That's up 0.8 points on September's 50.4 level. It marks the fastest expansion in activity since July 2014. And of course, anything above 50 indicates that activity levels improving. Anything below suggests a deteriorating. So that's a good sign for China. Yes, indeed, except you wonder whether anything's happened to the uh, burden of debt. That's right. What's driving that growth, of course, is a lot of debt. Well, yeah, a huge amount, and uh, that's a bit of a worry. I think so too. 
Interestingly enough, uh, talking about debt, citing property and debt concerns, ratings agency Standard Poor's has put Australia's smaller financial institutions on negative watch. S&P and added another 25 institutions, including Macquarie Bank, the Bank of Queensland, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, Credit Union Australia and AMP Bank to the negative watch. That's a shift from what was before a stable outlook. S&P already has the four major banks on negative and the ratings agency cited property and debt issues. S&P said private sector debt as a percentage of GDP had increased to 139%. That's up from 118% in 2012. And S&P said there was now an increased risk of a sharp correction in the property market. Well, since the uh, big banks, well, all the banks come to that, make most of their money out of mortgages and the housing situation is at least risky, it could be a bit of a crash. I think so. Now, the latest figures from the Australian Institute Industry Group show the AIG Australian uh, Performance of Managing Index, Manufacturing Index, increased by 1.1 points to 50.9 in October. Now, getting above the 50-point level took manufacturing back into expansion. And the big driver of the change was the increase in exports, rising 6 points to 56. Sales rose 3.6 points to 55. And new orders were up 6.4 points to 54.7. But it was very uneven. Not all manufacturing sectors had a growth. But some, uh, oddly, uh, in this uh, day and age when Australian manufacturing is in a bad way, um, some did very well. But it shows how fragile the sector is, I think, still. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's just above 50, not much. That, that's right. And a lot of the successful companies are really quite small. Now, Australia's housing boom shows no sign of peaking with Sydney house prices rise, House price rises leading the way. They rose 10.6% year-on-year in the past 12 months. In Melbourne, Australia's most uh, second most expensive city, prices rose by 9.1% year-on-year. And the difference is that Melbourne house prices are rising faster than units, increasing 9.6% compared with 5.2% respectively. On the other hand, prices rose by a steeper 4.6% over the quarter compared to Sydney's 2.9%. But the biggest increase for the quarter was in Canada. Canberra went up 5.6%. And all up, the figures took property prices up 0.5% across the nation compared with a 1% lift in September and 1.1% rise in August. So that shows it's moderating, but it's still very high. It's really too high for, too high for comfort, isn't it? At the same time, Gary, Australian building approvals fell 8 0.9% in September, according to the latest figures from the ABS. And the fall was worse than expected, with analysts forecasting it would be down by 3%. And the decline in approval was driven by a sharp fall in approvals for apartments. According to the ABS, approvals for new houses rose 2.3% to 9,605 in September. But at the other end of the scale, apartment and townhouse approvals fell 16.3% to 9,166. And they have now been falling for the last two months. Total approvals are now down 6.4% on levels from a year ago. And the value of buildings, however, skyrocketed because of the boom in approvals for non-residential buildings, that is, offices. And that rose by a solid 118.9% after falling for two months. And that saw the total value of all buildings approved rising 29.9% to $11.84 billion. But it's not a good sign for the housing sector. The outlook is for a glut of apartments, a lot of empty ones. That's right. As indeed happened in China. Indeed, indeed. So that's a space to watch. Now, the RBA this week decided to keep interest rates on the record low level of 1.5%. 
as we discussed with Stephen Coolis, and that means interest rates have not moved in three months. The last time the RBA cut rates was in August when it lowered its cash rate from 1.75% to the low of 1.5%. And the RBA decision comes after last week's CPI figures showing inflation was quickening but still well below the RBA's 2-3% target range. At this stage, economists are tipping more rate, rate, more rate cuts next year, with the RBA for the time being keeping an eye on developments in the housing and labour markets. Yeah, which could be a little shaky going down the track. Yeah, now uh, to corporate news, Gary, and record low airfares driven by fierce competition will hit first half earnings for Qantas. Uh, still the airline, which delivered a record of $1.5 billion profit in August this year, has shattered its third best first half profit in its history at $800 million, uh, to $859 million. Nevertheless, that is more than $100 million lower than the $921 million record, record first half profit recorded a year ago. And Qantas said revenue for the three months of September 30 had come in at $3.98 billion compared to $4.1 billion in the same period a year before. At the same, place, at the same time, passengers carry rose 2.5% to $13.2 million. But the problem is you've got all these record low airfares now. Yeah. And Virgin's in more trouble than Qantas. Though. Well, Virgin has just posted a $3.6 million loss on the back of low demand for domestic travel for the first quarter of this year. And it's subdued industry trading conditions during the quarter, particularly in the domestic market, had dragged down its earnings. On the plus side, the housing market boom has seen building materials group CSR delivering a 12% rise in underlying earnings for the six months to $103.1 million in the first half, with profit after significant items climbing 48% to $114.5 million. And electronics retailer Harvey Norman has reported quality property rise before tax of $115.6 million, which is up 25.9% from the same period a year before. And sales in the September quarter total $1.69 billion. That's a jump of 6.6% from the previous corresponding period. Uh, people are out there spending a bit more. Now, the ANZ has is exiting Asia. It has sold its retail banking operations and wealth management businesses in five Asian countries to DBS of Singapore. And it's all part of a bank's exit strategy from Asian retail banking and wealth management. And the price tag was not revealed, but ANZ said the sale price represented an estimated premium to net tangible assets at completion of around $110 million. Along the way, it, the sale, which will be completed next year, will result in a net loss of $265 million. That includes write-downs of software, goodwill and fixed assets and separation of transaction costs. So exiting Asia is going to cost ANZ $265 million. Not a good look for the now-departed Mike Smith, is it? No, well, it's a step away from his super regional strategy. He has since been replaced by Shane Elliott, and uh, he's got a completely different strategy. And I might add that ANZ had previously been looking to earn as much as 30% of its profit from outside Australia and New Zealand by 2017. So that ain't going to be happening. No, it didn't work out, did it? And the final bit of news, Gary, is that Aldi wants to keep eating into the market share of Woolworths and Coles with plans for its biggest reform refurbishment program and a push into the fresh fruit, vegetable, bakery and meat categories. And in interviews this week published in the AFR and the Australian, Aldi Australia Chief Executive Tom Dodd flagged a refurbishment program of $700 million to $1 billion, expanding its offerings in its East Coast stores and rolling out at least 120 stores in South Australia and Western Australia. And Mr Dodd said Aldi, which already has a 10% market share, could add another 50% to that number in the years ahead, taking its market share up to 15%. 
5%, obviously. And, of course, that would be stolen from Coles and Woolworths. Now, the discount retailers looking to add more fruit and vegetables, a wider range of meat, bread and chilled goods and health foods, and increases range to about 100 stop, by about 100 stop-keeping units to about 1,500 SKUs. Now, that's significantly below the 25,000 SKUs offered at uh, Coles and Woolworths. But... It will increase Aldi's market penetration. It puts more pressure on the big retailers. And I might add that figures released by Aldi as part of the Australian Tax Office's Corporate Tax Transparency Report shows the retailer's sales reached $6 billion, including GST in calendar 2014, with pre-tax earnings hitting $238.5 million. And um, So that's uh, $6 billion. And only six years ago, their sales were $3.14 billion. They're very smart, and people go to Aldi to buy specific things uh, where the price is good and the quality is also good. Lim- limited range, but it's all pretty good. That's right, and that actually shows... I mean, last week we saw figures from Coles and Woolworths. They were pretty lacklustre, and that's going to continue, I think. Yeah, Woolies actually sort of picked up a little bit from being you know, a bit in the doldrums, but Coles, I think, is under a lot of pressure. I think they are. I think they are. They're at, look, it's it's a really tough position at the moment. Really tough, yep. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Levi Aaron, uh, who runs Deliveroo in Australia. Yeah, that's fascinating. You, you Around Melbourne and Sydney, you see these guys on push bikes with big blue boxes on their backs with Deliveroo on it. Um, the company started in London. That's right. Uh, and it's an urban good food delivery system. That's right. It's really, really smart. So uh, we're going to be having a chat with him next week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.